Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. And I just want to, as I begin preaching this morning, say, of course, a, a big hello to our online audience. I'm sure it's much larger today as many of our people are on vacation, so we want to say hi. Why don't we do that? One, two, three, say hi to everyone who's gone. Say hello, everyone, to our online audience. One, two, three. There we go. So we said hi to you. Good morning. So I just flew in last night uh, from my summer vacation. My family had been spending two and a half weeks in the Bay of Fundy. Uh, on a little island called Deer Island that you can only access by ferry. I wasn't doing Twitter or Facebook. I was completely blacked out of, of technology land, and I was sitting in this island. And two weeks ago, uh, my wife and I went to church on Sunday morning, and uh, there's four churches on the island, and we decided to go to one. And we arrived, and it was a church built in, I think, 1881. And we went in. It was really uh, exciting. The kids had just... We were just preparing to do Sky Camp, the one we did, the VBS we did here. And so there, uh, there were a few kids there were singing their songs. So my kids were up dancing at the front of the church. It was great. And uh, they had rocking chairs in the back. So Joe and I were in our rocking chairs with Noah. And uh, we went to church. Uh, I, I drove away with my wife afterwards. And I said, you know, that was really profound. And she said, what was profound? I said, what just happened? She said, well, the church service was fine and it was good and it was chaos with our children as usual. What was profound about it? I said, Joanna, this is your great-grandparents' church. Our children just worshipped in their great-great-grandparents' church. Our children sat in the same box pews that your ancestors sat in and they worshipped the same Jesus. In our culture that is so transient, our culture that loses roots by the moment because of technology, I was stunned by the moment that my children were sitting in the exact same pews where Joanna's relatives, who loved Jesus historically, worshipped. They have never, of course, met us. They've been dead for generations. Four generations later, though, people in my wife's family are still worshiping Jesus. Why? Because in the normal, boring, everyday life, these people, who were probably fishermen or something else in the middle of this island, decided to follow Jesus and love him. And the seed they planted still is having impact today. The power of that statement, the power of that reality that I could have missed struck me so deep because I realized that is the heartbeat of this summer series in Ruth. Like we're going to find out again today, Ruth and Boaz lived a faithful, godly life. They become the foundation for King David. King David begins to build a line, and that line becomes the foundation for who? Jesus. And we're sitting here in Ajax today because of Ruth and Boaz's faithfulness. We are called as a movement to live beyond ourselves and realize what we do in our life could affect generations far more than we realize at this moment. As I sat on Deer Island, 600 people in this little island, a 16-kilometer island, so disconnected from this Toronto thing, I realized that what they had done was having impact in my life. As we've been finding out in the story of Ruth, much of what God does we don't see directly and then we do in other times. Our story begins in chapter 3 today. If you've got your Bible, I'd love you to virtually or physically turn to chapter 3. As Dave preached two weeks ago, so much can happen and change in a day, right? And yet, as we're going to read through chapter 3 this morning, even more can happen in a night. Don't forget, chapter 1 was nothing but devastation, famine and death and loss, no hope, no joy. Chapter 2 suddenly was filled with some hope. Ruth had not only been saved, she had not only been accepted and given in life, a physical life. She, she, wasn't, she was spared in the, in the sense she didn't die and her mother-in-law didn't die. But the, the chapter 2 told us she was now in relationship with God himself. Food had been provided and she's not only included in Naomi's family, but now she is part of God's people. And because she had chosen to make Israel's God her God, he decides to honor her faith and her trust. He decides to do it through the actions of a human being, a man named Boaz. And he comes and he affirms her family, her new family, and her, and her new faith and her new future. 
And since, of course, this all about, is all about God's uh, goal to restore humanity back to himself, this coming providential act, this sovereign enacted plan is, like I said, preparing the way for King David and then, of course, King Jesus. It's the sunset of chapter 2. The day is coming to an end. The story is about to enter into its next scene, into its next chapter. Not in the fields by day, not with Naomi, but now between sunset and sunrise. And the darkness that we're about to read and venture into is fraught with possibility and providence, but also possible temptation and trespass. Here, God's will could be worked out. Here, at this moment, generations could be affected. The reign and will of God could be felt. But for now... At this moment, Boaz and Ruth will be utterly alone for the first time. There will be no more chatting neighbors, no competing widows, no gawking field hands. Now duty and honor and love and providence will mix. Heaven is present in the scene. Don't misread this, but it's almost like heaven is incognito. God is unrecognizable. It's almost like God is looking the other way so Ruth and Boaz can meet. Hear God's word this morning. The living, active word of God, Ruth 3.1, reads like this. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Naomi now enters back into the scene, and she begins to talk through the very thing that she thought she could not provide Ruth and Orpah back in Moab. She says, look, I need to get you a husband Again, in this culture, marriage was the vehicle that would most likely secure long life, material prosperity, children, and, and the idea of inheritance being passed on. She decides to bring up Boaz, the godly man we've read about, the man of great wealth and integrity, the one that has taken her from widow, alien, outcast, and enemy to friend and family and has declared her faithful. She says in verse 2, Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman, a relative of ours. Tonight, he's going, to be at the winnow- he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So here's the deal, Naomi says, with a twinkle in her eye. Boaz will be in a secluded part where, where you could actually go and talk to him in the cover of darkness. The scene, she says, will unfold on the threshing floor. Now, the truth is, most of us here today and watching online, we are hardcore urbanites. We have no clue how food works, where we get it from. We go to Loblaws, and we think that's how it happens. And, of course, it's not. A threshing floor was an open space made of bedrock or hard earth. And what they would do is they would actually take grain, uh, barley, wheat, to that pressed-down area. And what they would do is they would either smash it with a large fork, They would have animals trample on it or would bring carts and they would go over it. And this act was to start separating the kernel from the rest of the stock. And then they would start the process of winnowing. And that is they would actually throw up all of that into a breeze, into an air, into wind. And that would begin to separate. The kernels would fall down, the chaff would blow away, and the stalks would break apart. In this culture, they'd take the chaff and that would be used for fire. The stalks or the straw would be used to feed animals. And then the kernels, as they fell, would be gathered up by hand and actually brought into very large piles to be sold. Much of the time, it was done at evening in this culture because that was the best time when the breeze would come off the ocean. So into this very plain and normal activity, Naomi, the mother-in-law, hatches an idea. She decides to do something that billions have done before and billions have done afterwards. She calls Ruth to herself and she says, Ruth, it's time to look good for your man. And so this is what she says in verse 3. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. You need to smell good for Boaz. You need to look good for Boaz. And you need to present yourself. But this is key, she would say. You need to do this at night. This is not going to be some beauty contest between you and all the other widows. This is not going to be some public competition. It's just going to be you and him. The scene unfolding in front of us is cultural. It's highly erotic and sexual. But this still is godly providence. She says in verse 3, Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. Smart woman. She leaves nothing to chance. This will take place under the cover of darkness. And this is about a relationship between a man and a woman. It's like an R&B song. She says, now, after a hard day's work, 
after a really good meal, when he's feeling really good because as a man, he's accomplished a task, that is when you're supposed to let him know you are there. Now, this is crucial, Ruth. This is crucial. You do exactly what I tell you. Now, by the way, just to give everyone context, we never want to read too much into the text with our own stuff. There is no sense in the original language here that Boaz is getting plastered, that he's totally hammered, and he's going to be laying there half drunk, and she's going to come up and seduce him, and he doesn't know what's going on. That is not what's being said there. All that is being said here is this. She is supposed to go and be quiet in a place after he has done a hard day's work, he's had some really good food, and had something to drink. Verse 4. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. In other words, there will be others sort of around, but note where he is. Then you go, you uncover his feet, and you lay down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this is when things get really interesting. Some of you are getting nervous. You should be. When he is sleeping, go over, Naomi says, and uncover his feet, and he's going to tell you what to do. Now, this is one of these things where we're supposed to go wink, wink, and nudge, nudge. What you think is going on here is sort of what's going on here. Here's the point. In this culture, and in Hebrew, the phrase to uncover or make visible is used time and time and time again, almost exclusively in the Old Testament, to describe a variety of illicit sexual encounters. And feet was used in the Old Testament all the time to talk about sexual parts. It's a euphemism. And so, is, he ta- is she talking about his physical feet or something else? The answer is, everyone, yes. So, the feet is a sexual experience or a sexual part. And this could, of course, provide the opportunity for premarital sex. So the question is, what is happening here? Is Naomi actually going to say to Ruth, who they both love God, we want you or I want you to go do this? Maybe. So the goal of the author is point, the point is, is this. The goal here for the original audience is to understand the high sexual tension in the air that this move is about to create. Never forget that Ruth was young and beautiful. Boaz was an older man. This is key. The secret plan of Naomi could lead, of course, to a passionate and an illicit sexual encounter, or it could turn into a scene of purity, integrity, and self-controlled worship. The real point is that she is supposed to physically lay at his feet, and the reason is about to become clear. Now, the goal here also, please understand this, is not a one-night stand, nor is this sexual encounter, per se, to lead to blackmail. The goal here for Ruth is marriage. She wants to talk to him without all the drama, and she's gambling huge here as a woman in this culture and a widow and an alien and a foreigner that this man in private is exactly the same as he is in public, but she doesn't know. So this is what Ruth says in verse 5. I'll do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Now, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and she laid down. Now, all of this that should have happened has now happened. Boaz is now beside his hard day work. He's mellow, to say the least. You could picture a smiling Boaz on the floor, staring up at the stars, just enjoying life. And then... He falls asleep like all men do and begins to snore, I'm sure. Hmm. Is he there because he wants an early start to the day? Is he there because he's just too tired to walk back? Is he there because he's afraid that all of his hard work could be stolen by thieves? We don't know. No matter the reason why, he's there. And it says that he falls asleep. Can you hear the heartbeat of Ruth? Can you feel the tension in the night air? Would she go through with the plan, with all of its great risks and sensual possibilities? Time passes. The air gets colder, as it always does in the evening, and the man's feet, his physical feet, are uncovered. It says it's midnight. Don't miss that. Holy history, time and time again, talks about moving at midnight. It was at midnight that God slew all the firstborn in Egypt. It was at midnight that Samson and Judges escaped miraculously from his captors. And so now, providentially, God is working at midnight again. 
You ever had an experience where you've been in a really deep, deep sleep and woken up startled? Anyone had that experience before? Anyone? You can talk back here. Yes? Yeah, okay. You ever, ever had a fight with your spouse or best friend in your, in your dream and you wake up really angry at them and they don't know why you're angry? Yeah. Or have you ever been falling and just before you die you wake up and you're freaking out? It's startled. I'm startled all the time, but now by children. They're like this close, and I'm deep asleep, and, and I just wake up, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's fine. Okay, uh, startled. And so we have a scene where this man is now sleeping, and he is in, in deep sleep. And it says in verse 8 that in the middle of the night, at the deepest point of his sleep, after he's had a good meal and he's worked hard all day, he's had lots of fresh air, something startled Boaz, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. The startling was twofold. First, his feet were cold. They, they actually were chilled, and, and something else was wrong. It felt like someone or something was so very close. So he, he wakes up. He's startled, and when you're startled, you are absolutely defensive. Suddenly, you have adrenaline rush through your body. Was it thieves? Was it fear of the unknown? We're vulnerable when we sleep. He was vulnerable, and so he wakes up, and it says in Hebrew that he turned. In other words, he groped around, and so the idea in the past is he actually touches Ruth. At that moment, can you feel it? At that moment, he knows there's another human being at his feet. From REM sleep to absolutely alert. I love when one wrote this, no matter what has happened, this upright, honorable Israelite suddenly found himself face to face with an unknown woman in a secluded corner of the threshing floor. What will happen next? Anger? Delight, embarrassment, holiness, sin, violence. See, temptation always comes strongest when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Boaz was lonely, definitely alone, and he's tired. Suddenly the darkness is pierced by his voice. Who are you, he asked. Ruth responds this way, don't miss it. I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my relative redeemer. You are my kinsman redeemer. What she does in this verse, we miss as modern readers at its face value. What she does here takes so much courage. It's serious guts. She says, first and foremost, Boaz, it's Ruth. Don't freak out. And second of all, I am your servant. We go, well, what's the big deal with that? This, this is humongous. She's taking Boaz up on his word, what he said about her in the fields. She is declaring her improved status. She is no longer a Moabite, no longer a foreigner. She is no longer a lower class poor person gleaning in the fields. She says, I am your servant. I am equal with the others around you. And side note, I am eligible for marriage. But then at that moment, she goes way off script Naomi told her exactly what to do and when to stop talking. Ruth has no time. Thanks, mother-in-law. We're done. I'm now going to talk. She turns around and says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are my kinsman redeemer. You know what she does here? She commands Boaz to marry her. Man up, Boaz. It's time. See, in this culture, and even medieval Arabic culture, when a man would come to a woman and spread the corner of his cloak over them, it was like putting an engagement ring on. This was symbolically declaring that a man is choosing to take this woman to be his wife. She's sitting here as a foreigner beside a grain pile at midnight, and she looks at the guy and says, you need to marry me now. Aren't you so glad this actually doesn't happen in our culture? Oh, I don't mean women asking men. That happens. What I mean is the cloak thing. How many people are you already married to? I mean, imagine every time you put a blanket over someone, you're married to them. Relatives, friends, it's very bad. In this culture, yeah, you're going, oh, no, oh, no, not that, oh, no. Yeah. But in this culture, this is highly, highly symbolic. And she understands it because Moabite and Israelite culture, very similar and so she says, I want you to do this for me, Boaz. I missed this also in my first reading. When she says, spread your cloak over me, it literally reads, spread your wings over me. Isn't that amazing? Remember, we found this out 
two and three weeks ago that God describes himself with Ruth putting his wings over her and including her into God's people. And now the image is used again where Ruth says, Boaz, as God has put his wings over me, now you put your wings over me also because you represent him to me. Never forget the main theme in this book is not love, it's providence. That, that, that's God's present activity in the world. Sometimes God's work is clear, it's obvious, it's miraculous, it's, it's, it's capital S, supernatural. Yet much of the time God works through the everyday, the normal, the boring, through people. And at this moment God is about to use Boaz to actually not only affirm Ruth in a deeper way, but actually to begin a great move of God. She says to Boaz, you need to do this because you're my kinsman, redeemer. I know Dave preached on this, but let me re-remind all of us, and you watching online and listening, this is one of the most significant ideas between Genesis and Revelation. This idea right here is one of the grand themes in the whole Bible. If you are a note taker, a highlighter, electronic or physical, highlight, underline, circle, kinsman, redeemer. As Dave and I have both already preached in Leviticus 25, God was seriously, seriously concerned about the poor. He always has been and he always will be. He was concerned for those who were foreigners and he was deeply concerned about widows because in that culture, they were the most vulnerable. And so he sets up a system to guard widows. When someone was widowed, a woman was widowed, it was the responsibility of an unmarried man in the husband's family to take her as a bride so she would not become destitute, that she would not starve to death, that her inheritance would keep going. But the kinsman redeemer had some qualifications. Dave preached this so well two weeks ago. He said, number one, a kinsman redeemer had to be a physical relative. Number two, they had to be willing. And number three, they had to be able. If one of those three was missing, it was a game changer and all the protection for the woman was over. This man has all three. He's a relative, he's willing, he's able. He says in verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than what you've shown earlier. You have not run after young men, whether rich or or poor. Boaz isn't offended at all. He's flattered, he's pleased, a little turned on. He's like, this is amazing. He blesses her, he declares that she is good and prays that God would bless her again. But, but then he says something so honest, so human, so real. This is what I love about the Bible. It pulls no punches. It isn't a soap opera that invents things. It's true. He looks at Ruth and says, but why me? Like, why me? You're shocking me. Why didn't you go after the younger and the stronger? You could have married for love and been poor or for fame and been rich, but you choose family loyalty? You could have chased after younger, firmer men and been inflamed by sexual passion. Or you could have actually been motivated not by sexual passion, but by greed. But, but you choose to set aside, listen to this, your personal power and preference. And you're asking for a marriage that would not only benefit you, but would actually benefit your family? Boaz praises her for her sexual chastity and her selfless act of love. He says in verse 11, And now my daughter... Do not, I love this, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask and all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. This is the ah moment. Yes, he says, I'm in. Yes, I'll do it. Yes, you've commanded me and I'm in. Here's my cloak. Not only am I honored and excited, but actually I've got even better PR news for us. This is gonna go well with the town. See, in this culture, unlike our culture, this was not about a personal decision alone. Unlike us that are fully and radically individualistic, I'll do what I want when I want, thank you very much. Their culture is communal. Here in this little town, she is already known even though she is a foreigner and she's from the enemy camp of Moabite. She is known as a woman of strength. She is known as trustworthy. She's actually known as a woman who is generous. She is efficient. She's a hard worker. And so he says, why would I not want you? You are a bride worth winning for sure. See, Boaz knew as a great man and leader that Ruth's reputation and actions would overcome all objections. People would say, but she's a Moabite or she's an alien. No, no, we know who she is. She's worth it. At this moment, everything seems good. Amazing, exciting. But then Boaz drops a bomb. This is at this moment like a soap opera where someone who's been dead who has a twin sister comes back or something and everything falls apart. 
Everything changes in a scene. Boaz begins to tell Ruth that he is willing and able and he's a relative, but actually, Ruth, I've got some bad news. I'm not under legal obligation to marry you, though you've commanded me and you've pulled the God card on me. See, there's someone else we need to talk to first. Although it is true, verse 12, that I am near of kin, I am a close relative, there is a kinsman redeemer who's nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I make my vow to God, he says, I will do it. Lie here until morning. There's another guy. He's a closer relative than me, Boaz says, and by God's law, we need to ask him first. And if he says, no, I'm so in, I'm your man, I want this, I'm willing to go above and beyond. See, this is why this is not just honor-bound, but this is a love story. He does not have to do this. He wants to do this. There is genuine love here. Can you imagine the heartbreak? Women, can you feel it for Ruth? All the risk, all the conversation, everything going so well. This is not just some small wrinkle. This could throw everything into chaos. Boaz was good, faithful. He was a real follower of God. Ruth didn't know anything about this other guy. He could be a total jerk. Who knows? Tension, fear, question, internal turmoil. And then Boaz says, we have to wait till morning, so sorry. So she lay at his feet until morning and got up before anyone could be recognized and said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is important for our our thinking today. They're thrown into the most tempting of situations. They really are. Many of us here, sitting here and online, have been in this exact same situation. It's nighttime. They're alone. And and don't miss this. They're already committed to each other. Can you hear the temptation? Well, we're going to get married anyway, so of course we can have sex. Or the other guy, if he says yes, we'll never get our chance. This would, we, we, we could just have this one night. No one would ever know. See, they're attracted to each other, and yet they choose to worship God. They choose to obey God. They choose worship and integrity over passion and sin. Hear this this morning, whether you are 80 or you are three, everyone in the middle, hear this. Never forget this this morning. If you do not connect your sexual life to worshiping God, none of us will obey him. Morals, being good for being good's sake, uh, never, ever work. No matter what paper you signed, if you were in youth group or the promise ring you put on, if you do not connect what you do sexually with the idea of worshiping and loving and obeying God in the moment of temptation when your blood is flowing and your eyes are engaged and your instinct, your natural instinct that God gave you is powerful, only a deep love for God and His Holy Spirit will stop you from moving from temptation to trespass, which always in the end, as Paul so brilliantly taught, will destroy you and your family and will deeply hurt your relationship with God. As one pastor so strongly preached about this, the stars are beautiful overhead. It's midnight. He desires her. She desires him. They're alone, and she's under his cloak now. And yet he stops it for the sake of righteousness and does not touch her. What a man. What a woman. She stays all night which was important actually for her safety. Protection from roving drunk men celebrating the harvest, thieves, others. And yet, Boaz knows that although they have done nothing wrong, actually they've probably done more to honor God and each other, this of course could produce gossip or or worse, an accusation of what we call in the Bible fornication, any sexual activity outside of the marriage bed. This untruth uh, or accusation of premarital sex could complicate the next day's legal transaction between Boaz and the other kinsman redeemer. I love this when I read this this week. One can only imagine what impressions their meeting would create among the town. Find yourself in this as you talk to each other. An old man is victimized by a seductive Moabite. Oh, no, no, it wasn't that. It was a clandestine lover's tryst, or it was a conspiracy, another says, to get around what the law actually said, and they were trying to defraud the other relative. The town gossip would make so much out of it. Can you imagine this on Facebook or Twitter? Boom. 
The repercussions, though, that we miss could be catastrophic. Instead of finally attaining full membership into God's family, this woman, because of this accusation, could actually lose her relationship with her mother-in-law and be sent back to Moab. So Boaz, Boaz decides to deal with this right at this moment. He, and he's going to do it in a very public way. Since perception is reality, he would say, let's make sure that the perception really is what reality is. So he said to her, bring me your shawl. Bring me that beautiful shawl you put on for me that you're wearing and hold it out. And when he did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, can you imagine the mother-in-law? What, how did it go, my daughter? She told him everything Boaz had done for her and then added, and oh, by the way, mom, he gave me six measures of barley and and then said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed, smart man, smart man, smart man. Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Here's what we also, at least I missed this week. Boaz gives her 60 pounds of grain. This poor woman had to drag that back. (laughs) Boaz gives her 60 pounds of barley. And remember, these women, only a few days earlier, weren't sure if they were going to get enough food to live. And she she was in the fields gleaning as a widow. And now they have 60 pounds of food. So she comes home and knocks on the door and Naomi walks out. How did it go? She says, well, I think it was good. Look at this. Wow, what's going, you know, what's going on? And then would tell her mother, and oh, by the way, I commanded him to, to marry me. She freaks out and says, oh, but there's another person. And, and Naomi says, this will be worked out by the boys today in that culture, of course. Now, the scheme from a human level has somewhat worked, but heaven knows this is not some human plot line that could fail. This was God's hand, and in one way or the other, this was going to be resolved. Another cliffhanger. And so we're left to wonder what would happen with Ruth's faith and her fate. What marriage to Boaz, marriage to another, more pain, unexpected blessing, gossip, slander, all the way back to Moab. Yet before we rush on, notice again that little phrase. Please stay with me. Where it says that Naomi was not to be left empty-handed. Do you remember when we started this summer series? The description Naomi had of herself in chapter 1? She came back. And she was nothing but empty. Her sons were dead. Her husband was dead. She had left Bethlehem in famine. She was coming back out of famine. And not only that, she had no grandchildren, no inheritance. And she said in verse 21 in chapter 1, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She'd been empty by famine, empty by losing, by death, empty because she had no grandchildren. But now this gift that Boaz gives, gives us a great signal of what is to come. What we see physically in seed is a promise that children and marriage and restoration are coming. As one said, the seed to fill the stomach was the promise, the seed to fill the womb. Everything that Naomi had prayed for and wrestled with and yelled at God about, everything that Ruth had trusted in, explicit faith in a God she hardly knew, this God was showing up and answering prayers in profound ways, but it was happening over a painful time. Now, of course, we're going to have to wait till next week to see what happened. You can read ahead. It's not that much of a cliffhanger. But the question is, out of this small text this morning, Not only what do we learn, because church, we learn all sorts of things all the time. New information is not helpful. We don't need Greek knowing in this church. We need Hebrew knowing. That is, we need to know and experience. So here's the question, as you are here and you are listening and watching online. What is Jesus himself trying to tell us out of his living word for us as the community and for you? Beyond just learning something new about a threshing floor, what is God saying? Well, number one, I want to remind everyone in the strongest words possible, that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Boaz was a foreshadow of what is to come and what has come. What does a kinsman redeemer need to be? They need to be a relative, they need to be willing, they need to be able. Have you ever thought why Jesus, who is God himself, became flesh? Because he had to be a relative of all of us so he could buy us back. Was he willing? You bet you he's willing. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. He willingly did this. In John, it says, Jesus declares this with such power. No one takes my life. I lay it down and I'll raise it back up again. 
Is he willing? Yes, he is. Is he able? Yes. Let me declare this again with strength this morning. There is no one that has ever lived or who has ever lived or will live that has done what Jesus has done. He is the only one able to forgive us of our sins. He is the only one who has overcome death. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. Krishna never existed in the full extent. There is no great religious leader, no philosophy or technology has done what Jesus has done. He is the only one that is able to conquer death and he's the only one able to restore us back to God. Why? Because he he is God. That is the heart of it. He is willing, he is able, and he is our relative. That is the power of the Christian gospel compared to every other religion and every other worldview on earth. The author of Hebrews said it so brilliantly in Hebrews 2.17, for this reason, Jesus became like his brother's. In every, way that or, in every way that in order that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God, that he might make atonement for the sins of people. And because he himself suffered and he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Boaz was a foreshadow of what Jesus would offer the world. He offers one, well, he offers lots of things. But the grand offer he gives to the human family is the word redemption. It means to liberate by paying a price. It's, it's a ransom. In biblical times, the idea of redeemer meant that you would buy back a person, a widow, a slave, a prisoner of war, and you would actually have to pay a price. You would have to step into the situation and you'd have to give up yourself or things of yourself so they could be restored back into relationship. And that is the whole idea of Christmas and the cross. Jesus was born to die and then die to rise again and says, I have taken your place. I have become the ransom so you can know the living God again. To see Jesus work this way in your life though, especially for you here or online, that are not Christians. Hear this, to understand Jesus and to understand what he offers you, you have to understand the trouble you're in. You have to understand the darkness and the chaos first before you'll never need a savior if you don't think you're in trouble. You'll never need to be redeemed if you don't understand that you're a widow. To be liberated, to be saved, to be bought back, you need to understand, like all of us need to, what the scriptures actually say about our condition. We as human beings are not just sick or sort of morally good. The scriptures declare, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The scriptures declare we are hostile to God because of our actions. The scriptures declare that we are alienated from God because we ourselves want to run our own lives our own ways. Jesus shows up in this service this morning, even in this summer service, and says to some of you, or one of you, I'm willing, I am able, I am your relative, but here is the difference between me and everyone else. You have to come to me like Ruth did to Boaz, and you need to say to me, yes, you are willing, you are able, you are my relative. Spread your cloak over me. You need to invite Jesus into your situation, because Ruth understood that she was in trouble. Ruth understood that she was at the point, at one point of death. Ruth understood that if he did not act, all could be lost. If you want to meet the living God of heaven and earth, if you want to enter into a relationship with him, if you want forgiveness of sins, everything you've ever done that is wicked, if you want that washed clean, if you want to face death and not be afraid, if you want to know that there is an afterlife, if you want to know that there is a physical resurrection, if you want to never be alone again, you have to come to the place, Scripture says, where you humble yourself before Jesus and say, I am like Ruth, I'm a widow, I'm separated. Spread your cloak over me, and Jesus will declare to you like he has to many of us, I am so willing, welcome home. What do you do with your kinsman redeemer? Do you want him to redeem you or do you want to continue to trust in what you do or who you are or where you've been or where you're going? The gospel is offensive to all of us because it tells us we're in trouble, but the gospel is liberating because it reminds us there's a savior in our world that transcends what we see around us. If you just give your life to him, everything that he has done on the cross will be given to you and he'll give you so much more than 60 pounds of barley. Huh. He'll give you life. Sit with that for a moment. And if that's you, just sit with that. You don't have to listen to anything else I said. Sit with that and we'll pray in a moment. I want to remind all of us as Christians in this midsummer series 
that Jesus is still our kinsman redeemer. By the way, can I have, I'm going to pull a youth group thing. I need everyone to look at me right now. Hear this, please, this morning. Jesus is still our kinsman redeemer. Some of us have walked with Jesus for so long and we forget this. It was the author of Hebrews, thinking about this, who wrote these words in chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, who is the Son of God, let us hold firmly to faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one that has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he is without sin. Amen. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of what? Say the word. Need. So many of us as Christians start buying into some bizarre idea that when we are weak or in need or we're in trouble, we run and hide from God. The very first result of the sin in in the garden in Eden was hiddenness. We don't have to hide from God anymore. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. If you are weak, if you are struggling, if you are sinning, don't run away from Jesus. Run at him. Run to him. Jesus died and is our great high priest and our kinsman redeemer. So in times of trial, we can be close to him. Much of the time, we allow our feelings to dictate heaven, where heaven should dictate our feelings. I don't care if I feel close to God or not. Scripture says I am. Run at him. And if you are one of these Christians who's running from him because you feel he doesn't want to talk to you, you've done something too large, he is your kinsman redeemer. The day you met him is still the same today. He is willing. He is able. He is your relative. He is without sin. Come to him. This is the power of the Christian gospel, applied once and for all when you meet him and worked out over our lifetime. Two other thoughts, and then I'm done. In this too, we see a call for sexual purity. Make no mistake about this. Our culture says do away with the old ideas of stopping. Anything that is guilt-producing, we are now taught, like chastity or faithfulness needs to be thrown out. Sexuality in our culture is what you want it to be, what you think it can be. It can be whatever your imagination can invent or what you should be. But as Christians, that is no for us. As I preached in our last series, we don't own ourselves. We don't own our bodies. We are slaves to Jesus, willing slaves. Our sexual lives, our sexual futures are determined by Jesus, by his spirit, and what the Bible commands us to do or allows us to do. What we want, what we feel, or what we think we're born into is not the final determining factor for us. They are all important factors, but they are not the determining factor for us. It is God's calling for us and God's work in us. That is the determining factor. God calls us to live our lives for him, and God's life is upon us and in us and through us. God calls us to live out our sexuality for him as worship. Sex is good. Sex is a gift. It is not ugly. It is not inherently bad. Adam and Eve were having sex before they even fell. It is God's plan. It is powerful. It is beautiful. It is pleasurable. It is loving. And oh, by the way, life-giving. But just like money and power, Christian life is about worshiping God through everything. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know? Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own anymore. You are bought at a high price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Make a commitment this morning, no matter your age, right now, to never put yourself, please hear this, to never get involved in a sexual relationship of any kind outside of the biblical idea of marriage if you're a Christian. Look to Ruth and Boaz, not to what you see on TV or online, what your friends say, what your professors say, what your heart tells you, what your family tells you. Look to Ruth and Boaz as examples, strong, righteous, passionate. I love when one person preached, don't be like the world. Be like Boaz, be like Ruth, profound in love, subtle and perspective in communication, powerful in self-control, and committed, here's the phrase, to strategic righteousness. Some of you are saying, but John, you don't understand. Before I was Christian, you have, oh my goodness, my life, if if you knew it. Well, let me tell you this morning again that what you were and what you are now 
is two different things. Your identity is not formed in what you were before you met Jesus. Your identity is now in what Jesus has done for you. Paul put this so strongly also in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know, he said, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. The sexual immoral, and that's a phrase saying all sexuality that's outside of the biblical worldview. Idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then here's the phrase, and that's what some of you what? Were. But now you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our identity cannot be diminished because of what we used to do before we met Jesus. Jesus' work is stronger than our history. We cannot ignore our history. We need to work through our history. We need to be honest about our history. But it doesn't determine us anymore. Jesus determines us now. This is so significant for the call for sexual purity because if you allow your history to determine you, you will always end up keep falling. God comes to us and he calls us out and says, we are called to be people that are radically different. (laughs) Many of us are going, but John, it's not a past issue. It's right now. It's right now. Here's my response to you. Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins... He's faithful and just and will forgive your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. There is no sin large enough to wipe out the work of God and you're not big enough to kick Jesus out of your heart. He's just too big. We have a call here out of Ruth 3 that is explicitly the gospel. Here in Ruth 3, we see a call for sexual purity. A purity that this church needs. If we are going to be countercultural in the biblical sense, One of the grand places we can make our stand, not politically, spiritually, is in our sexual lives. God is a forgiving God. He's an honoring God, but he calls us to this. If you have not had sexual relationships yet, I know that's a minority, but if you have not, just make the decision to follow after Jesus. Make the decision to worship God in all parts of your life, no matter how difficult it is. Live for Jesus and by Jesus, because in the end, he is the one that you will live with forever, no one else. Last thought and I'm done. Here it is. This whole passage beyond sexuality, his foundation is the gospel, is where I started. We are called to live beyond the moment. We need to, if you are a Christian, be strong in our commitment to Jesus. Be strong in your prayer life. Be strong in your public and private life. Continue to struggle honestly, but live by Jesus and for Jesus and with Jesus. Live your life understanding that your life isn't just about you. It's about others. You may never know the legacy, what seed you are planting in your everyday Christianity. Your faithfulness in the everyday, your faithfulness in the normal, in your family, in your witness, in this church, in your connect group, will all have power beyond your own life. If tempted to give in, if tempted to stop serving or giving or leading or being led, just remember that this isn't just about us sitting here in 2012. This is about generations that will follow long after us. Like Ruth and Boaz, their lives became the foundation for King David and Jesus. Only in heaven and in the new earth will we see what our faithfulness really has produced. Live beyond the moment for God's glory. Live beyond the moment for the salvation of many you are never going to meet. Live beyond the moment and be like a Ruth and Boaz because your physical line or those you influence spiritually in four generations from now, if Jesus doesn't return, may look back and say, well, there was a person in my family. There was a family in my family. There was an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or there was a husband or a wife or a child. Those people met Jesus and because they did, I have now been made open to him. Here's the understanding. Live your Christian life understanding that someone may end up like a place like Deer Island and say, my children may meet Jesus because people did four generations earlier. Don't buy into the cultural lie that everything is today. The kingdom of God is going throughout the generations and we are responsible to live faithfully while we are alive. Understanding though, it's not just about our personal worship, but it's about many who will follow after us physically from our own families or spiritually and many others. The question is, are you willing to be faithful for people you will never ever meet till heaven? If you do, God will honor you on judgment day 
and will say thank you. And his voice is the only voice that will matter in eternity, right? Let's pray together. Oh God of heaven and earth, the same God that Ruth embraced, the same God that Boaz honored, found fully now through Jesus himself. Just as a community this morning, (laughs) we have some stuff to pray about. And so just hear our prayers this morning. Uh, Number one, Lord, some of us here or online have just realized we do not know you. We know about you. We've heard about you, but we've never embraced you. And so we, we need to meet you now. And if that's you, pray this prayer. Just say, Jesus, I need you to become my kinsman redeemer. I need to enter into your family. And so I come to you and I'm just saying, I'm in trouble. I'm sinful. I've lived a life without you. And I just, I'll use this old word. I repent. I turn. And I embrace Jesus. I embrace you. I, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I ask you to walk into my life. I ask you to put your wings over me and say, you're now my child. And I turn from the life I'm living and I'll follow after you. I accept you as Savior and King of my life. And I trust in your work that you died and rose again. Like, come meet me. I'm done fighting you and running from you. And I want to see this work out the rest of my life. So Lord, just have your way in me. For others of us, Lord, this morning who are here, we're sitting here and we have forgotten that you are a kinsman redeemer as Christians. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd speak to certain people here and online and not only remind them that you're there for them, but we are welcome to you. Lord, I pray over uh, all of us in our sexuality. We thank you, God. The scriptures and this church affirms that sexuality is good and beautiful and profound, and we're, we're deeply thankful for that gift. And we just pray you'd begin to work this out in us, Lord. For some of us where our past is so much power, I pray, Lord, that it would begin to lose power and your power would replace it. For others of us who have struggled even last night, I pray you'd forgive us and restore us and teach us to follow after you. Lord, I pray for all of us in this church, and I'm asking Holy Spirit for your help because we won't naturally do this. I pray that myself and my wife and this whole church would live a life publicly and privately in our minds and with our bodies that is honoring you. I pray that this church would worship you even in our sexual experiences. Help us, O Lord, to give up what we think is ours or our right and give it back to you. Lord, again, I pray too that you would work through all of this so no person in this church would ever feel guilt that was not justified. No one would confuse temptation with sin. I pray for victory and restoration, but I do pray for this calling. And lastly, Lord, I just pray by your spirit in my own walk and the walk of my fellow family that you would remind us from this day forward, just every once in a while, that our faithfulness isn't just about today, but we're fighting for generations of Christians to come. Make us faithful to the one who is our kinsman redeemer. Help us to live with understanding that one day the only person that will matter and the only person we'll give account to is Jesus. Help us, Lord, to live faithfully starting now and continuing now so others, our children, grandchildren, spiritually or physically, and way beyond them, could possibly know the Jesus that we love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, we pray these things. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to this ministry, visit our website, www.c4church.com.